Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and, and welcome to this edition of the Zulhijjah seminars that are being conducted by the Cambridge Muslim College. My name is Abdurrahman Malik and I'm so honored to be part of this incredible series of programs that the Cambridge Muslim College is offering during this blessed time of Zulhijjah. Over the last few days and in the coming days, we're going to hear about the many facets of this sacred month, about the Hajj itself, its rituals, but also around the stories and the histories that surround this month. And, and perhaps most importantly, the spiritual significance of these 10 days of of, of Zulhijjah, never has this time been more important than this year. This year when we are experiencing a pandemic Hajj, a Hajj in lockdown, where the vast majority of people who intended to visit the house of God and perform the rites of the pilgrimage will not be able to do so. In a way, it helps us focus on why Dhul-Hijjah itself as a sacred month and these 10 days as a sacred time are so important for us as individual Muslims to mark, to celebrate, and to honor. As part of this series of honoring Dhul-Hijjah, I'm so honored today to be exploring in some ways what is what is probably one of the most iconic and influential Hajj experiences of contemporary Muslim history, the Hajj of Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz Malcolm X in 1964. Growing up, uh, my parents were, um, were fascinated by Hajj narratives. In fact, my father loved to collect books um, about the Hajj narratives. And we would be taught about the, 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 the pilgrimages of people past, particularly those who were new to Islam, converts from Europe and the United States who, who went to Hajj, or those interlocutors who weren't quite Muslim yet and went to Hajj. And what did they experience? These Hajj narratives as a child held a fascination for me, but I don't think I really understood the power of Hajj until I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Reading the autobiography of Malcolm X at a fairly young age for me, being introduced to it both by my teachers at the mosque and my parents at home, gave me a different sense of what the possibilities of Hajj were. Hajj wasn't merely a, a moment to celebrate and to commemorate certain rites of pilgrimage. Hajj was a moment for deep, total, um, profound transformation. And in some ways, we've come to see the Hajj of Malcolm X in 1964 as a moment of profound transformation in the life of a remarkable man, a remarkable leader, and someone who would be martyred for the cause of freedom, human rights, and justice. There's many people who have been influential in the story of Malcolm X, many names that many of us may not know. But some of them are still with us, and some of them remember acutely the kind of person Malcolm was, why his Hajj was important, and that impact that that Hajj had, not only on himself, but on our communities, our Islam, for years, decades to come, even until now. In particular, there's been an interest in the last few years around Malcolm X and the Sudanese. Some of you will know that in 1959, Malcolm traveled to Africa. This is well before the Hajj takes place. And one of the places he visited was the Sudan. In the Sudan, he met a young student by the name of Malik Badri. 
And today it is my honor and my pleasure to be speaking to Dr. Malik Badri about what became a many years long friendship with Malcolm X. And also um, a, a, an experience which reveals a deep connection that Malcolm had not only with Africa, but particularly with the idea of the Sudan, Sudanese identity and Sudanese history. This is something that scholars now are sort of uncovering and revealing that amongst influential African-Americans, there was this draw, this call to the Sudan and its connection to the African-American people, which I find not only fascinating, but a necessary corrective to some of the perhaps cliched approaches that we have to Malcolm X's life. Before I introduce Dr. Badri, I want to include a little personal note. Dr. Badri is, uh, is legendary. He's been called pioneering. He's been called groundbreaking. Uh, some have called him the father of contemporary Islamic psychology. Uh, I remember that in our library at home, there was Dr. Badri's 1979 work on the dilemma of Muslim psychologists. It was a blue and, and yellow covered book, very dramatic, very thin, and had a number of cartoons in it. I remember as a child going into my parents' library and looking at this book and looking at these cartoons and not understanding the, the jokes and the, and the humor and the, and, and the critique of psychotherapy and, and, and other Western disciplines. And yet over the years, as I myself became interested in no way a scholar, but, but more of an amateur interested in psychology and psychotherapy. And as I was introduced to the ideas of Freud and Jung, I found that I was drawn back to this little text that sat in our library at home. And in exploring this murky world of psychology and psychotherapy, it was this book that I turned to to make sense of what it all meant within the Islamic tradition and in the Islamic worldview. To think that a book that's uh, 41 years old has had so much influence is really to underscore the influence of uh, Dr. Malik Badri, who is currently a professor of psychology at Sabahuddin Zaim University in Istanbul, was previously a professor at the International Islamic University in Malaysia. As I said, he's been a pioneer in the movement to integrate Islam and psychology. He's published several books on the topic. His work is, is, is well known. And recently, Dr. Badri, along with Dr. Abdullah Rahman, who's now at the Cambridge Muslim College, both of them recently co-founded the International Association of Islamic Psychology to advance the development of the field and to carry on this incredible legacy. Dr. Badri, assalamu alaikum, and, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much. Uh, you are you can you hear me well? I can hear you perfectly well, uh, Dr. Badri. Alhamdulillah. I, Alhamdulillah. I, I, I want to say that what an honor it, it is to be to be speaking speaking to you and and to draw on what is really a lifetime of experience, um, not just in the work of psychology and and psychotherapy, but actually what has been a lifelong journey through the worlds of Islam. You, you yourself are a global soul. You've, it feels like you live, you've lived all over, um, all over the, 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 the Islamic, is, is Islamic world. Looking back on your life, Dr. Badri, um, and, and sitting where you are now, um, what does that feel like to have, to have been, to have, have sort of been a witness 
to all these incredible changes that have happened over the past 60, 70 years? Yes. Yes, I think that it is really... Uh, I used to think this about my father, because my father was a soldier with the Mahdi. Uh, he fought uh, the, the British in Sudan, and then suddenly he changed to education, and he made the very first school for girls in the Sudan and devoted himself to education. I was really wondering about his ability at that time to adjust and readjust to so different situations, being ruled by the Mahdi, being of Sudan, then being ruled by the British, then going towards independence of Sudan, then working as a merchant, then leaving merchant and becoming. I was just wondering, about his flexibility. And then, uh, now I begin to think that either it is genes or environment that made me also live different ages. Also, he, he died at 94. Now I am 88. So I have been going through very various forms and some of the things that used to happen to me when I was a child with my father, my father would be surprised. How come you sit next to me like this and you take your tea like that? In the past, we'll have to sit down on the floor with our... Then, and he laughs. Look at how the world has changed. Now I'm saying the very same thing to my, to my children. The way when he comes in, we all stand up and we behave with him in then you, he, they come and they chat with me, dad, and they, he puts his hand on my shoulder. What, what is this? What is happening? I think that uh, we are now facing, uh, we'll have to be flexible to change. And I think that living in different countries gives the person this ability. When I, I taught in universities in Sudan, in, uh, in England, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in uh, Malaysia, in Ethiopia, in Morocco. I've been going around and seeing different people and, and that is maybe is the thing which gave me the, the, the vision of what we call today cross-cultural psychology. I, I, I don't take a psychology of any country as, 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 as true. It is simply influenced by the culture in which it has developed. And maybe this, uh, consciously or unconsciously, have shaped the way uh, I have been working on developing an Islamic form of psychology. So Dr. Padre, it's, yeah. it's, it's so fascinating that you, that you talk about travel and, and this idea of, of cross-cultural contact as being such a vital engine um, in the process of, of, of change and the way that we orient ourselves to the world. And, and in thinking about Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz and thinking about Malcolm X, particularly in that first 
visit to the Sudan where you met him. It feels, yeah. it feels like Malcolm is beginning on that very process, that even no. before his break with uh, Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, and at that time he was a minister in that organization serving um, Elijah Muhammad, he, he goes on this incredible journey to, to Africa in 1959, ends up in the, in the Sudan, exposing yes. himself to these new cultures. And he finds you, you find him, God puts the two of you together. <laughs> tell, us of, tell us how you and Malcolm came together in 1959. And, and also, Dr. Badri, before you met Malcolm, had you heard of him? Did you know of his influence or, or his work? I'm, I'm fascinated to revisit that young Dr. Badri as he's, yes. as, he's, as he's meeting this incredible personality. Yes. Yes, at that time, 1959, I was around 27 years old. And I just finished my master's degree from the American University of Beirut. And I was working in our private uh, college. We have a college, at uh, that time it was a, a secondary school and primary school. Now it is a university. Its name is Ahfad. Uh, I was working there in this Ahfad, which is, Ahfad is the Arabic word for grandchildren because my father started it as a kindergarten for his own grandchildren. Incredible. So uh, at that time, I was the headmaster of the girls section. I just finished my master's. And I came, I became a, uh, an Islamic movement oriented young man at, at that, after I went to Beirut. Before that, I was a normal Sudanese kid. But when I went there, and I found that, uh, that uh, the university was still becoming a university, freeing itself from the old name, the Syrian Protestant College. And, but still, it was a strongly missionary Christian. And I had to fight way. I came to Islam, in fact, at that time, through my arguments with uh, my, my Christian lecturers. And uh, I looked at psychology at that time that that made me uh, uh, think of Islamic psychology. Now, uh, this was 1954 when I first went there. But then, when I finished uh, my master's and they came back, I still had this impetus of, uh, of the, a movement, an Islamic movement-oriented young man. So somebody came and told me, Malik, there is a black American man in uh, the Grand Hotel in Khartoum. He just arrived. I was, uh, I was motivated to go to see him and welcome him because I was still under this feeling of, 
of, uh, of coming out of a university that was a missionary university. And I was under this influence of, of defending Islam. In fact, I came to Islam through going to read Islam in order to, to, to argue with my lecturers. It is instead of convincing my lecturer, I convince myself. And that is how, when I was told about this, I was highly motivated. I just went to the Grand Hotel. I, I, I read about the black Muslims at the time. Uh, and that they are deviant. I knew that Elijah Muhammad was deviant. I knew about them. But I was also uh, uh, sort of Im impressed with their strengths and their uh, uh, way of uh, dealing with their economy together in uh, 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 not sub subjugating itself mentally to the white man. All that was in my mind. And maybe now I, I'm, I'm old enough to think back. Maybe also because of the spirit that I had against the, this, uh, the, the, the Islamic fight I was uh, uh, doing within myself in the American University of Beirut. We are only very few who were really Islamically oriented. There was a person like Ishaq Farhan who became the minister of uh, Awqaf in, uh, in Jordan. There was Dr. Uh, Nabil Mahaini who became a doctor and went to... These people, I, I had my relationship with them even up to now. One of them is still alive, he's over 80. We still contact each other and speak about that period. So I went to the hotel and I looked for this man. Where is he? Then so then he Salamu alaikum, brother, welcome to Sudan, so and so. Then uh, immediately we were able to talk together and, and, and as if uh, uh, as if we already met each other for for a long time before. But I knew he was deviant in his thought. And this to me was a wise step which did not look like me at the time. Mm -hmm. At the time, I would have stood up and told him, yeah, you are a deviant man, you think so and so and so. I never mentioned any criticism to Elijah Muhammad because when I met him and I took him uh, uh, to Omdurman where it is the real capital, native people, and uh, uh, to go to the marketplace, uh, to go to this and see people. At that time, he would tell me, you know, the most honorable Elijah Muhammad said so and so and so. I will not say to him, Elijah Muhammad is a deviant man. There is no profit after Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he claims that he is a prophet. He claims that uh, uh, he changed a lot of the, the ways of Islam and its regulation. I wouldn't say anything. I just let him talk. And then I will 
explain to him the true point of view of Islam. Mm. When he says, uh, God came to Elijah, Allah, this doesn't take the shape of a human being and knock the door of someone and tells him, I am God, and the, to give him a message. This is not uh, possible. In Islam, this is not acceptable. Allah is far beyond our, no human being can, can actually think of what Allah is like. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are really the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whom we can only know from what he spoke to us about himself. But we by ourselves cannot know. I, I, did you I find, Dr. Badri, did you, how did you find uh, Malcolm's personality at that point, his receptivity as you were taking him to Amdurman and, and introducing him really to this ancient culture, but also this ancient Islamic uh, culture with its architecture and, and, and the people and the, and, the, and the way people dressed and the adab and the, and, and, and the behavior, things that we know so well about the Sudan even today. There's something so distinctive yeah. about that Omdurman atmosphere. As you were with Malcolm, what were you observing in him in terms of his personality and his yes. and the way he was reading the situation? Yes, I think it was quite obvious to me at the time that he came from a country where he was suffering from segregation. At that time, it was 1959, from uh, abuse, from uh, uh, the way they treated the, the black Muslims of the American black the black people, not not only the Muslims, but but the the, the 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 what they call the niggers, the way they used to treat them. So when he came to Sudan, people in the Sudan, even up to now, are are generous people, particularly to foreigners and to guests. The United States, uh, Nations. Up to now, they say the Sudan is the, maybe the only country that welcomes all the Africans who came as refugees. And uh, uh, they are not getting enough money from the UN to, 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 to help them. Uh, uh, I myself, when I was a young man in my own house, I had uh, six people six young men who are studying with me in our private school. Their parents in, in Asmara, in Addis Ababa, in, uh, 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 in, in Kenya, they sent them to my father. We want our children, take them, bring them up in your own uh, home, in your own school. And they were living with us at home. And many of them were were intimate friends until uh, some of them died or we, we can no more, no more have a relation with them. But uh, this is common in the Sudan. So when Malcolm saw the way they, they, they uh, it was to him a very moving indeed, not only this 
but the fact that people do not know when they look at him and see, they do not know that he is not a Sudanese. So some would speak to him in Arabic and then, oh, then I'll tell them, no, this is an American guest, so and so and so. The, the fact that they think that he is one of them made Malcolm feel that it is for the first time he feels he is part of a, of a nation, part of a group who accept him fully and are generous to him and like him. So indeed, I think that was one of the important things that influenced Malcolm. Mm. And it showed itself when he went back to the United States and he gave a talk in front of his people. There is one Sudanese who, uh, who has the greatest relationship with him after that, Ahmed Usman. Yes. So uh, when Malcolm spoke, Ahmed Usman told him, no, this is not true Islam. This is so members of, uh, of the, of the Bilalians or the black Muslims at the time wanted to kill him, wanted to attack him. Then Malcolm will shout, no, this man is a Sudanese. I know the Sudanese. Leave him alone. Let him say whatever he wants to say. Let him criticize because of the experience he had with us. Mm-hmm with me and with the Sudanese people. So I noticed in him this, this, this happiness of, of being one of, of, of a man of the people, one of the people who are home visited. It's so interesting, Dr. Badri, because, you know, we, we, I, I guess you know, we, we share this, uh, this, this, this firm belief in, in, in divine destiny. And, and it is yeah. so fascinating that he comes to Sudan, spends time with you, is introduced to this deep Sudanese culture of Islam and adab and akhlaq and, and, and history and hospitality, returns to the United States with these experiences and having been introduced to Africa and the Middle East for the first time, and it is a Sudanese student who engages him deeply. It's yes. like, it, it feels like Allah is bookending the experience. Yes, yes. Yes, I think that he is, he is being, I think Malcolm was, was much more of a blessed man than people really appreciate. This, I have noticed this in a number of ways. The coincidences that happen, these are not coincidences. To Allah, there is nothing called coincidence. Things happen according to, to a plan. I am, I am very deeply impressed by this uh, feeling now because I, I begin to think deeply about, about life of particularly people whom Allah guided, like his own prophets, most beloved people, how he brought them up. There is a, a reason for everything, minor thing that happened to every prophet. If you take this to prophets, then it applies also to Muslims and to other humans. Nothing happens by chance. It is planned. And people who are guided, are guided directly and indirectly by this divine kindness and love. Uh, Dr. So, Padre, uh, Malcolm, uh, yeah. 
No, so, so, sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Badri. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just want to say that Malcolm, when I tell him true Islam is not so and so, true Islam says so and so and so and so, he ponders, he's quiet, mm. he is contemplative, but he does not, uh, this did not shake his belief in the noble status of Elijah Muhammad. At that time, to him, the, the, the black Muslim movement itself was, was like, uh, like uh, what shall I say, like a, a, a part of, of the deen, like a weapon, you know, like, like, like a, an idol. He cannot get away from it. But he, he was shaking. He just, uh, this is what Islam says, yes, sir, so and so, dear brother Malcolm. Then I will take him from place to place. I take him to my relatives at home. I took him to the, then he said, I, I, he had the cine camera and he wanted to take films to take it back to the, to the black Americans in the, in the United States to show them that they are people who have a culture because they told them at that time, just imagine, at that time, they used to tell them that you are coming from a country that has no culture. The African, they have no culture. So he took the cine camera in order to record the beautiful culture of Africans. He told me, uh, I want to, to see more of, so I took him to my school. And he goes to see the girls in the school, knitting and doing uh, very fine works with their finger. He takes the shots. This is terrible. This is unbelievable. Then he goes to see this and this. That. I think at that time, Malcolm was, uh, uh, he had this impetus to, to, to prove that, that we Africans have a culture and have our own uh, and also to talk about Islam. But to talk about Islam, there is a conflict between what the, the, the Muslims say and what uh, Elijah and, uh, is, is, is saying. Uh, I think he had this conflict, but at the time he was unable to resolve it, or at least to he only thought deeply of it. I could see that the features in his face. Malcolm's face is, is, is a beautiful face. It, it expresses whatever he feels it shows in his face. Uh, so, I mean, this is the... Uh, uh, he got this and then, of course, after that, we go to our homes and eat. My brother, who was the the boss of the holy school, the president of the... Uh, so I took him to him, uh, he welcomed him, and then uh, he invited us to lunch in his house. And we all went and we had lunch there. Uh, 
this place is uh, the house is still standing but part of it is uh, has been pulled down to increase the size of the road in Omdurman mm. but he was impressed by uh, by the school was impressed by my my brother and uh, and with the general uh, then I take him to the goldsmith shops and other things in Omdurman to mix with the people and uh, uh, go to see the the market where they sell vegetables and and meat and things everywhere he's welcome everywhere he finds a warm and people invite him of course he cannot go to to, to people's houses just like that but he was uh, very uh, grateful and thankful and impressed i think that visit is the one that guided him. I think uh, whether he was conscious of it or not, but this was the thing when he uh, uh, went to Hajj, this is what uh, stimulated him. Mm. So we had, we, we stayed together for a few, day, for a few days or a few weeks, and then he, he went to other African countries and back to the States. Then we continue to write. To That's what other. I was going to ask, uh, Dr. Badri. I was going to ask in the, in, the, in the years that followed between 1959 and his Hajj in 1964, uh, I, did you keep in touch? And you, yes. You did keep yes, in touch. We kept, we kept in touch. But there was um, a sad experience in which I collected the cards that, that, that he sent me the letters, these, and uh, together with other very important documents in my life. And I put them in a, a cupboard. But they were in a room, and my younger brother uh, wanted, uh, we divided the house so that room and its contents became part of his property. And then uh, he said to me, I want you to take your things away from here. I need that. I said, okay. Uh, inshallah, in a, matter, in a week, I will come and take my things within this. Otherwise, you just burn everything. It is not important. So I came to take my documents. He said, I burnt it. Ya Allah. Everything was this. Now, the only thing I keep about Malcolm is a letter that he wrote to me which is kept in his diaries. While I went to, when I, uh, we parted, I was preparing to go to, uh, to England for my PhD. So I, in 1959, in September 1950, I left to England. He wrote to me in England. And this letter is, is still found. Also, I have one picture in which he was in the airport in Beirut in which we uh, came to say goodbye to him when he was leaving. Do, Dr. Brother, did he tell you that he was, um, I mean, I, I'm sure you were following, you were receiving letters from him, you were following what was happening with him in the United States. But before mm. he embarked on the journey that would become his Hajj, did he, mm. did he write to you or, or tell you that he was undertaking the, 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 or about to undertake the pilgrimage? No. No, he did not. Because this Hajj 
it seems, according to Ahmed Usman, it came suddenly. And he did not have the money. So they borrowed it from his sister. They borrowed money from his sister. The, the so great uh, Ella Collins. Uh, yes. So it was not a planned thing that you could write about before beforehand. Uh, he did not tell me about it. Uh, we were together, then he went, and then uh, maybe he told me he would be going to Hajj, because now it is a long time, you see, and I'm getting old. But, uh, uh, yeah, I think he did tell me that he is going to Hajj. Uh, but he did not tell me that he wanted to see me, to come to, come to see me, you see. Uh, then I, uh, we parted and he invited me to come to the United States. In this letter, which is kept in his diary, he invited me and my wife to come to the United States. Uh, but at that time, I didn't have the money or the impetus to, to go to the United States. And, uh, uh, I, when I went after all, I went after in order to help the black Muslims come back to Islam. Mm. I went, uh, uh, asked, I was asked by uh, the um, Muslim Student Association and my, my university to go there and help these people. They wanted to know what Islam is, so I went and I lived with them for three months. But before that, I, uh, we, we did not have a lot of letters, contact letters. Only all of a sudden, uh, I was in my flat. My flat is only across the road from the American University of Beirut. So, so just to give everyone a sense of the timeline, um, uh, the, the, the Hajj period happens um, this Hajj is, uh, is hastily arranged. His uh, sister, Ella Collins, uh, God bless her soul, gives him um, uh, some, uh, lends him the money. He now goes on the experience of pilgrimage. You are at the American University of Beirut. You are I in was Beirut. a lecturer in the American University of Beirut. And you have this flat across from the AUB. It's 1964. You're in your flat and the phone rings. That is right. It is not the phone, it is the depth of phone. It's uh, someone comes and then raises and presses the button. Then a, a bell will ring in my flat. Okay. Then he will say who he is. And now here is where Malcolm was guided. I'm, I spoke about this. Uh, uh, Allah is guiding him. He came to Hajj. And he had a strong feeling. After we parted, I got married and I came to England for my PhD. And I lived in this flat across the road from AUB. And then he came uh, from, he was in high and was supposed to go back to the United States. But he wanted urgently to see me. 
how could he, he see me? His ticket was, and this is what he told me later after he arrived. My ticket was Jeddah, uh, Casablanca, New York. Mm-hmm. But then I was walking, I wanted to see you, so I saw uh, Sudanese with turbans and walking in, in, in Hajj. Please come and tell me, do you know a, a man called Malik Bedri? Yes, we know him. One of yes. them knows I am in Beirut. Yes, he is in Beirut. He is a lecturer in the American University. Then he said, when I knew this, I went to, the, uh, uh, to the, where I bought the ticket. Please change my ticket. Instead of Jeddah, uh, Casablanca, Morocco, New York, change it to Beirut, uh, 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 New York. Mm. And he had to pay and he changed the ticket. And then he came to the American University of Beirut. And he was walking in front of what we call the college hall, the main building. He was walking there, and whom shall I ask about Malik Bedri? This is a very big place. Then he saw one young man who looked black, blackish. Come, uh, please, do you know uh, someone called Dr. Malik Bedri? Yes, of course, he's my uncle. (laughs) He was my nephew, the son of my own sister studying pharmacy in the American University of Beirut. Subhanallah. And then he said, how come? And he's living here. You know that building here? This is where he's living. So he just walked. He's only a hundred meters or so. He walked to my flat. And then he asked, then he pressed the the phone. Then the bell rang in my flat. I took the phone. Yes, who is that? Then he said, he had a specific beautiful voice. It is a deep voice which uh, nobody can not recognize. But I couldn't tell because it is impossible for Malcolm to, to be coming and ringing the bell for me. Then I said, yes. He said, this is Malik. Ashabas. Mm. I said, Do you mean Malcolm X? He said, Yes, it is him. I just put down the telephone and I ran down the stairs to him and I embraced him. We embraced each other and he was so moved by this meeting. We went up and he told me, uh, My dear brother, I am not very much, I don't like this city very much, Beirut. But I only came to see you. So, Dr. Badri, you are one of the first people to whom Malcolm X comes after the experience of the Hajj. In a way, way you have such a unique position to observe the Hajj through not his autobiography, which was released you know, um, several years later, 
yeah. not through his interviews, but directly with him. He's coming out of that experience. Yes. Help us help us understand, Dr. Badri, how and why his Hajj experience was so transformative and what, what, and what did he share with you? You know, before he could put it into words or before he had to say it to the media, what did he say to you about that experience? Because he's literally coming out of it into your apartment and, and, and reconnecting with your friendship, which is such a, what a remarkable time um, to have such a friend, Dr. Badri, and, and to be able to share this, this, this moment with Malcolm as he's, I imagine he's himself processing what, yes. what, the, what the Hajj and this experience, experience means. I, 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 this is, you offer us such a unique insight into this, into this moment. Tell us, tell us about it. Tell us what you think about yes. this moment in this Hajj. You see, he has been going through a lot of emotional upheavals. Before going to Hajj, he came back to Islam itself. The Islam that I was telling him about in 1959 must have now reappeared to him when he had his problem with Elijah Muhammad. And Elijah Muhammad became to him like, uh, like rather like an enemy rather than a, a leader. So and he went to Elijah and expressed some of his views. And I think uh, it is then that the, the black Muslims uh, decided to get rid of him, I think from that moment. But then he also had this Hajj experience. There was this emotional uh, upheaval concerning breaking away from a movement that he had built. Secondly, changing his uh, uh, religion because he, now he discovers that this is deviant and he knows what true Islam is. This is a big change, these two. And then the third is the Hajj experience itself. Now, it, it, these three experiences were really, they could shatter anybody. But he was really, I could see it in his face. The face of Malcolm X, when he came from Hajj and we sat together taking lunch. I can remember now that the, the, where my table was in the, the dining, in the sitting room. And where I was sitting and facing him and talking and my wife bringing the food to us, I think uh, the man sitting there is very different from the man of 1959. Uh, he was more serene. There is an air of sadness, but he was serene spiritually a different man. And uh, the way he was talking was uh, 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 not the way of uh, a man who is sure of himself and wants to change the, 
the whole of the United States and to change it. He was more modest, but at the same time, he was, uh, he kept his ambition to come up with something which is, uh, the fact that uh, he said to me, it may be a sentence which later on he wrote down and it was published in the Life magazine, I remember. I used to think of uh, the white as a devil and so on, so, and to think that there is a difference. But then I went to Hajj. We sat in the same carpet with people, Muslims, whose color is so white, their eyes are blue, their hair is blonde. We break the same bread. We eat the same food. We stand and make prayer, worshiping the same Kaaba. Uh, this is something which was really, uh, to my mind, uh, changes that were really uh, so much for... Uh, so I think that uh, the Hajj experience was really a crowning experience for a number of other uh, changes that took place. Mm. Then I do remember when we were taking lunch, and that was in the first day he told me this. He told me, my dear brother, I will go back to America and I will be killed. Hmm. I will be killed. I will be assassinated. He said it as if he's saying, I'm going to be given a special status. I will be given buying a, a special suit. I'm going to eat ice cream without the emotion of fear, mm-hmm. without the emotion of, uh, I will be going and this. But Malcolm, Malik, I would say, and here is an important thing. Why did he call himself Malik? Mm-hmm. There are a number of uh, Various names that you could choose from. Why did he choose Malik? Haji Malik al-Shabbas. And then it became a common name, um, a name among the black Muslims in America today. How? I did not dare to ask him why he chose my name as his first name. But I felt it. Mm. And I kept it within myself. Uh, here I want to say that I was facing a different man altogether. Mm. And I remember in that lunch because of the beauty, the well, his well-known speeches. Then I said to him after we ate our lunch, Malcolm, I would like you to speak in the campus of the American University of Beirut in AUB. Yes, I will be happy to do that. But you know, these people may not uh, wish me to speak in their campus. No, it's, it's an open place. They, have, they speak about freedom, the point of view. Yeah, I will find it. Don't worry. Okay. I will, I will speak. 
if I'm allowed to speak in AUB building. I will continue. I went in the morning to the head of our department. May Allah bless his soul. His name is Qurani. Qurani. It doesn't come from Quran. It comes from a town in a small in Lebanon called Quran. He's a, a dear prof. I have with me Malcolm X. He's my guest. And I would like him to speak in campus here. Malcolm himself? Yes. No, no, this is the dangerous man. It is not for me, head of a department, to agree. Go and see the dean. So I went and I saw the dean. The dean, now I will remember his name. He is also a Lebanese Christian by the name of Hanania. Dean Hanania, uh, I have with me uh, a guest who would wish to make a speech in, uh, in, in the campus here. Yeah, yeah, so who, who is this? Uh, Malcolm X, oh, Malcolm X. No, 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 this is too dangerous for me to take a decision. You have to see the deputy uh, president of the university. All right, I will see the deputy president. His name was Fuad Sarruf. He's a great scholar, a good Syrian man. He's a, one of the best Christian uh, Syrian professors I have known. I really admired him. He's in history and culture. He was a great man. Professor Sarouf, I have with me a guest uh, here. His name is Malcolm X. Malcolm X? No, no, no. This is too much for me to decide. You will have to, I will have to talk to the president. Not you go to the, no, I, the deputy, I will talk to him. If he agrees, then you come tomorrow, I will tell you. If he doesn't, we have no way. Then I came the next day, Professor Sarouf, what did the president say? The professor, the dean's name, I remember all these names, is Norman Burns. Professor Norman Burns said to, the, to, to his deputy, no, this AUB is actually land of America. We bought it and it is in the name of the United States. And this, rec this uh, campus belongs to America and this man is an enemy of America. We cannot allow him to speak. Okay, then I went back to Malcolm and I told him, he was not surprised. He was expecting it. But Malcolm, I will not give up. 
you know, out of the uh, university, facing the university, is a little road going up. Uh, uh, and this road uh, is called Abdel Aziz, Shari Abdel Aziz. In this road, there is the Sudanese Cultural Center. Mm. So I went to the Sudanese Cultural Attaché. My dear friend, I have a black American scholar who would like to give a lecture, public lecture. Uh, will you kindly allow us to use the buildings here? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Then I told the students, all the Sudanese students in the American University, many of them came with grants from Rockefeller and for to study in the American University. And uh, I was a lecturer, so they looked at me as, a, as someone who is their, their guardian, their father, though they were older than me, many of them. Uh, but a number of them were young. One of them was a leading uh, person among them and was a movement-oriented Muslim. So I told them, look here, Malcolm X will be talking tomorrow evening in the Sudan Cultural Center. I want this to be, uh, papers to be put all around the university. Malcolm X speaks in the Sudanese Cultural Center in Shari Abdelaziz. They put signs everywhere. And then, uh, I told Malcolm, tomorrow we'll go. I thought that there will be uh, 200, 300 people coming. So Malcolm went because the Sudanese young people, the students, took him. They told me, you just stay away. We take care of him. We make him visit this place, this place. So they took him to the cultural center. And uh, he was preparing uh, to speak. I took my wife and we went. A bit later, I remember about, about seven or so. The lecture was supposed to start at seven, quarter past seven or, or, or a little bit after seven. So we, we went uh, hoping to find the place to sit. We found that the Sudanese student kept two chairs for me and my wife facing Malcolm, Malcolm's table from where he spoke. But when we came, we found Shari Abdelaziz already blocked with people. Incredible. No cars could, could pass. No, peop, no person, no lecturer in the American University who has not come to the cultural center. Not only this, but because people were so many, the Sudanese uh, rented a loudspeaker outside for those who cannot get into the building. And then it was to, to us, we were, I was shocked. But I had to go through the crowd. A Sudanese young man took me and my wife until we came to the, where they kept our chairs and we sat. And then Malcolm spoke. Mm. I'm fascinated to hear Dr. Badri 
what he said that day. I, I, I you know, I, in several places, I've, I've read uh, accounts of, of this remarkable evening um, yeah. that you helped organize, the people, the energy, the feeling, um, the knowledge that he had just performed the Hajj, your insights into where he was. What did he say that night at, that, at the cultural center? Is there something that you remembered distinctly about that evening and, and, and his words and his, his reflections? What I remember, because I am a student of psychology. So what I remember most was how people reacted and the influence of his talk on people. He spoke about uh, the way the black people are being treated in America. He spoke about the hopes. He spoke about Islam. And whenever people after that spoke to him as a great, no, it is not me who is great. This is Islam that made me like this. Mm. Also, I was just looking while he was speaking, I was watching the people. I think I have never heard up to now, I have never heard a person who was able to speak eloquently, emotionally, and to mold the audience the way he wants. Mm. I, in my, when I wrote about this in a, in a journal, that asked me about this. It was published some time ago in a reputable journal on a British journal. I said that it is as if these people in front of him are a piece of clay that he shapes in any way he wishes. He would say things which make people tearful and tears may be running down their cheeks. Then he cracks a joke and they laugh like children. Still the tears are in their faces. Oh. This to me was, was the more important thing that I have been noticing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, his ability to express the, when he spoke about the way the black Americans treated, many of the, uh, Americans in the, in the audience. And I remember exactly two of them. It is a professor of engineering and his wife. They were black Americans. And they were moved. They could not stop themselves. The wife in particular stood up. Brother Malcolm, you are right. We in this university now, because we are black, we are mistreated in the NAUB. And she spoke about things that happened to her husband because of the, the white administration. I think that Malcolm made people lose their uh, composure. They speak. Mm. And then uh, one 
uh, of uh, the Sudanese young man who is very hot-tempered. He was sitting at the very back of the, of the lecture. And one person who maybe for some reason hated Malcolm, either he was a, a, himself a, a, a white uh, uh, Lebanese who, or, or some other nationality who has identified with the, the white Americans and thinks, yes, they deserve this. They are really people who are low class. So he said the word just between nobody heard him, but the people around him. He said the word against Malcolm. Then we only hear a loud slam, like this. Mm. Someone giving him a slam in his face. It was one of the Sudanese young men. He could not tolerate uh, because he was really full of uh, enthusiasm from what Malcolm said. Mm. And it could have become a, 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 a serious issue in which people will fight. But then Malcolm very quickly spoke, cracked a joke, and people were laughing. Mm. And then he spoke about this quite, quite, keep quiet. And then people forgot the incident. It didn't, as if it didn't happen. Mm. But the man just received his slam in his face and he kept quiet after this. Many American professors, I remember, mm. some of them, one of them stood up and said, uh, a silly thing, you know, he's a white American. He said to him, if you hate America so much, why do you live there? So Malcolm answered him, I did not come to America on the Queen Mary. I did not come invited. I, I was dragged as a slave. My parents were brought here. Do you think I, uh, this hatred of mine is out of nothing? He said this, this American professor, I remember, was sitting with his face high up and talking. After Malcolm answered him, he, he knelt down, you know. I used to observe him throughout the end of the lecture. He, he, you will not think that he is there. He put his head, physically, he was downed. Not only psychologically, physically, he did not raise his head again. There's something so remarkable about the, the, the stories, Dr. Badri, mm. because I think it, as, as you said earlier, it, it speaks to, to Malcolm as a, as a person, not only his passion and his resilience, but his incredible persuasiveness and the mm. way he was able to take the internal conversation and, yes. and, and make sense of it and present it in, in mm. not just only a compelling way, but a profound way in a way in which force people to act on it. And you know, it's, it's interesting that, that, that what you're describing in a way is probably the experience so many of us who, of course, never had the opportunity to meet Brother Malcolm, but when we first heard his speeches like the ballad or the bullet or the message to the grassroots. And I used mm. to, we used to get them on, on tapes when I was in high school and, and yeah. we listened to them with our friends. We felt the same way, you know, even listening many years after his martyrdom, listening to those tapes. And, and I, I, I totally understand and can feel in my heart what you're saying that, 
that that even so removed from the physical physical experience of the man, there was something about the way that he spoke, the way that he was able to not only put words and ideas together, but the emotion, the passion, the intelligence behind them that was so compelling. And I think in a way, and, and I know we only have a few minutes left, in a way, it's, I think it is really significant that one of the important things about Malcolm's Hudge is that he is able to take that incredible rhetorical ability and to describe the Hajj in a way that whether you were Muslim or not Muslim, whether you knew what the pilgrimage was before or you, or you didn't, he described the Hajj in a way that anyone who reads it is, is almost taken into the moment of the Hajj. Not the, not the physical rights of the Hajj or the, <coughs> or the, or the fiqh of the Hajj, or, but uh, they're taken into the experience of, yeah. of, of the Hajj. And in, in a way, isn't it, I, I feel like that's one of the things that makes Malcolm's Hajj as important as it is for him and for the future of Islam in the Americas and beyond so important, but also what it makes the, 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 the narrative of the Hajj so important is that he describes it in a way that takes people into that moment. And I, I mean, I know so many friends um, uh, people who became Muslim through reading the autobiography, um, friends who aren't Muslim but have been deeply moved by the autobiography. I don't think anyone reads Malcolm's words or hears him speak and isn't moved by it. And yet m- most of the people who I speak to about Malcolm, including my students, um, because we looked at the Hajj narrative in my class uh, here at Yale uh, last year, it's it's amazing how moved they are by it. You know, yeah. like how 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 taken with that moment. They want to revisit that. They want to understand what's happening at that, at that moment. And, I, and it's something about Malcolm, but it's also something about the Hajj, isn't it, Dr. Badri? Yes. yes I, I haven't performed the Hajj, but you've performed the Hajj. You know, as a psychologist, as someone who's done the Hajj and understands your own Hajj and Malcolm's Hajj, what is it about the Hajj itself that unleashes these possibilities. Yes, yes. I think that this is obvious in Malcolm's behavior. In Hajj, you feel, first of all, it teaches you humility. The way you are putting on this ihram, just like uh, everybody whether you are a minister or whether you are a, a servant or wearing the same clothes. And living, I do remember people come first and they are told you sleep here. It's only a small uh, blanket on the, on the floor, you know, next to somebody. And then I sleep, yes. At first, it's difficult to, to, to be in a room where there are about 10 people sleeping next to you, snoring, and um, it's, uh, then all of a sudden, two or three days, you are a different person. The way you look at people after that is, is changed. And I think that Malcolm was ready to look at the white people as 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 human beings 
as good people and that uh, um, and 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 this encouraged him to make his new uh, movement his new organization which he, wa he wanted to set up but did not find the time to do so he was killed before it it's, it it actually uh, was established in it he would not uh, care about whether a person is a is a practicing muslim or not whether even whether he is a muslim or not they come together for a, for a certain purpose this could not have happened without uh, without this experience but i think that there are things that happen in hajj which you can see in the face and and you can feel in the heart of the person mm. which cannot be put down on words and uh, one of these people is my own brother who was very old and was a medical doctor all his life he was rather secular and then he became islamic then he wanted to go to hajj and he wanted me to take him around then when he went to hajj and he came back the next year it was time people were going to hajj he wrote to me now i see people preparing to go and i feel so much moved i wish if i can go again i wish if... now how come you know a person who's been living luxuriously like that he was a minister of health of the sudan at that at the time in which ministers were really respected now what about uh, uh, what happened he's going to go to sleep on the floor to go through all these difficulties yet he wants to go again mm -hmm. Th this is something which is a secret i think that uh, the ayah of the quran wa'adhin fil nasi bil hajj ya'tuka rijalan wa ala kulli dhamirin ya'tina min kulli fajjin they come from all corners of the world. They will come to you. Your job is only to make azan. Tell people, come to hajj. That's all. But leave the rest to me, Allah. I think that Allah has, he must have put a secret into it, which we are not quite aware of. Maybe a, the land itself expresses this. That's an incredible answer, Dr. Badri. Yes, yes, and I, yes, and, I, yes. and I think in so many ways summarizes, um, in a way, the journey that we've been on in this conversation. Um, yes. You know, it's so important, and I, and I think for, for those who are listening to this conversation as we, as we conclude, it, it's, it's so important that, that we've talked about this entire process, isn't it? Your, the, 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 the meeting in 1959, the Hajj itself, you're keeping in touch with Malcolm before the Hajj. He's coming to see you specifically in Beirut and finding you in this in this beautiful, amazing way. His speaking in in in, in Beirut, um, his friendship with you, the changes that you noticed. You know, the Hajj is almost like a pivot. And you said something earlier, Dr. Badri, that really um in a way I've never thought about before, you know, and I, I consider myself a, a student of, of Al Hajj Malik al Shabazz. You're so right. There are all these changes that are happening in Malcolm's life. So mm. many profound moments of, of, of political, spiritual, personal, emotional struggle. Mm. 
And, and you know, often, uh, you know, over the years, I've, I've thought about, you know, what is it about the Hajj? Is, is it Malcolm telling us a story about the Hajj, perhaps that we want to hear? Is it something that often makes us feel good as Muslims when we explore the Hajj of Malcolm? But actually, the process of transformation in Malcolm began long before the Hajj, as you've told us. It began yes. in the conversations he had with people like you and, and asking the serious questions because he was a seeker. And the Hajj sort of becomes a point where he has to confront all these big questions and there's no time now to, to, to waste. He has to confront them in the moment through experience, through ritual, through prayer, by sleeping on the floor, by being with people. Like Now he has to come, he has to reckon with that. And he comes out of the Hajj and ends up in your apartment having lunch with you, talking about his future uh, martyrdom and assassination, but also you noticing that that something has happened in him. There's a change that yeah. has occurred. And, and not like he has a, it. It's the same Malcolm, but it's it's a Malcolm that's that's progressing, that's that's moving, that's growing, that's seeing the, the possibilities of things. I think in a way that's what makes this story so beautiful and so powerful and so timeless for us that the Hajj and Zulhijjah and this time becomes a moment for us to reckon with what comes before and what is the possibilities of, of what comes after, isn't it? Inshallah. Um, yes. Dr. Badri, my last question to you. Uh, Malcolm leaves you um, in 1964 to return to the United States. He does come to Beirut one more time, doesn't he? Yes. Uh, before the end of 1964. And did you see him at that time? And was that your no. last meeting with him? No. no. I think he was maybe hoping to see me. But at that time, there was a conference somewhere and they went to the... I was not in, in, in Lebanon. Mm. But I knew that the American University was wise enough this time to allow him to talk in campus. Amazing. Yeah. And, and Dr. Patri, before his martyrdom in February 1965, did you have an opportunity to, to correspond or to, to be in touch with him? Before? Before his, his martyrdom, before his assassination, did you, did you, no, no, the time he no, left Beirut? No, I did and, not have a chance to do that. No, I, uh, I was only surprised. This, I asked him this question, Malcolm, how can your own brothers, people whom you trained and how can they kill you? He said, yes, they will kill me. I, train these people, I know how I train them. And I know how they think. And I'm sure they will end my life. Mm -hmm. He said this, and a few days after it, he was leaving, his house was bombed. Mm -hmm. And then later on, he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. uh, the, this this uh, Yaqeen, Yes, Yaqeen maybe which she had is because I think Malcolm did not have a chance. If I had the chance, I wish if I had the chance to sit with him and for him to tell me, to tell me about his, about his dreams at night, about his feelings, about uh, 
uh, Jannah. I think that a man who looks at death as uh, with this kind of feeling, with this kind of bravery, with this kind of uh, of yaqeen, uh, uh, of this kind of serenity, meeting death. It must be there is something going on within him, mm. which will uh, will make him uh, support this. People are afraid of death. It is natural. Now, when a person uh, 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 look at death as only a place to move from one uh, life to another life, and and he just goes on to meet it like, it must be there. Must spiritually, he must have a lot of uh, of aspects. I expect that he had visionary dreams which he told to nobody. Maybe he had feelings about what what is going to happen to him after death. And uh, uh, I wish if I had this uh, time, and also at that time, I was not Sufi-oriented. If, if this happened today, I would have indeed opened up the subject and spoke about it in detail. Because now this aspect of spirituality is to me a, a very important thing. And, uh, and uh, I think that without it, a person will never be happy in this world mm -hmm. or will not be fully happy in the next. Mm. Uh, so those, uh, those would have been, those would have been Incredible conversations, Dr. Badri. And in, 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 inshallah, we, we, we make dua that we are united in, in, uh, in the gardens of eternity. So, so we, can, we can continue those conversations. Dr. Badri, I have one last question for you. I've taken up yeah. uh, so much of your time and you've been so generous um, you. today with us. Um, if, you could, if you could offer one enduring lesson for us, from the life and personality of Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, what would that lesson be? What is that, what do you feel is one lesson we can take away into our own lives and our, and our, and our work from yeah. the life of Malcolm X? I think one of the most important lessons is the lesson of optimism, of relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his forgiveness. This Malik al-Shabazz, if you read his autobiography, he was a very bad man. I, I, uh, for example, now I could see when I saw him after he gave his talk in the Sudanese Cultural Center and came out, many young women, beautiful girls, they came rushing to him. We want to be with you, I want to. He never accepts, he never looks. He only treats them politely, but sustains himself, keeps himself. Nobody could talk a word about his honor in, in relationship to his sexuality or his relationship with women, which is rather strange. He's a handsome man, 
tall, speaking strongly, having this, definitely many women will be attracted to him. But he, he was, how did he get, get this strength? I think he got it because of his past, his bad past as a pimp, as someone who, who used women for uh, just to get money to, to use this. I think that the, the bad qualities that he had have multiplied when he changed, it became a source of, of reward and happiness and spirituality to him. And this reminds me of the verse of the Quran. Those who change, Allah will change their sins into, into good deeds. It means the person who have sinned and did very bad things, when he changes, all the bad things he did will be changed into good things. How come? I think that this is one of the things which is that was a driving force in Malcolm's life. Uh, and there is, I think, a hadith, I don't remember it, in which in the, in the last day in Yom Al-Qiyamah, some of the good people, they would say, we wish if we were, we did more bad things before we, before we repented and came back to Islam, because they would have become uh, so I could listen that you can learn from his life is that you never give up on the fact that Allah will forgive all sins and will accept you whatever you have been doing uh, I think this is an important aspect the other important thing that uh, is that uh, Malcolm, he had his abilities and he was all the time to me. I could, I could see this. Whenever people speak to him, Malcolm, you are a gifted man. Malcolm, you are a good speaker. Malcolm, you are so and so. He all the time is, uh, he jerks. No, no, it is not Malcolm. It is not me. This is Islam. So the feeling that whatever he has is a gift from God is something which is to be appreciated. And we have to learn this. Allah has given us so many good things in our lives. The fact that we are able to speak. A, a tongue and, and lips to express himself. It's a great gift. We never think of it. So I think Malcolm was trying all the time to remind himself that whatever great abilities he had are a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think this is very important for us in our lives. We forget it. We forget it. Thank you so much, Doctor Badri. That, uh, the, yeah. the lessons of optimism and the and the gifts of God are are really are really powerful. 
um, at this yeah, time and yeah. at all times. I, I want to thank you. Thank you for sharing so generously of your of your insight and your experience. Thank you so much for 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 sharing your your incredible memories and and for giving us an insight into this remarkable human being um, and also this remarkable Hajj. And I think at at this time that we're living through this time of great uh, unsettledness of times of trial. Um, I think it's it's really important to remember the the people of God, and and, and you've reminded us of a of of, of someone like that uh, today. And you yourself and the work that you've done is a reminder to us of of uh, the incredible people uh, that we have access to and that we're privileged to know. And I've been so privileged. Dr. Badri, to be uh, to be with you today. So, Jazakallah Khair on behalf of, thank you very of myself, much. the Cambridge Muslim College, and the community Bar- that's Bar- watching Allah. this. Thank you so much. I hope we can do this again sometime. Inshallah. Jazakallah Khair, Dr. Badri. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Support the next generation of Muslim thinkers by donating today at cambridgemuslimcollege.ac.uk.